I've titled this sermon today, Children of God. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. But before we get there, I want to preface this. We're going to talk a lot about assurance of salvation today. And I reference this or compare this to some earthly relationships which are not perfect. And so I apologize for the imperfect examples, but that's what we have to work with. But when I was a teenager, or a kid rather, my parents, they prepared all of us to exit the home at the age of 18 years old. Uh, I did not have a lot of strict rules when it came to school or anything like that. My parents would literally say, uh, if you're dumb, you're dumb, but when you're 18, you're out of the house. I'm like, okay, well, there we go. <laughs> and uh, and they, they conditioned us to work, and they encouraged us to get jobs, and they did encourage us to do well in everything we pursued, but they didn't have this strict punishment for bad grades. And when it came time to leave the house, I felt ready. And I was 18, and I moved to Houston, and that was about three hours away from my hometown. And I was able to do that because I had assurance in the relationship I have with my parents that if something goes wrong, they would still have my back. If I lost my job and I needed some extra money to make rent, I knew that my parents would be able to be there for me. Or if I had car troubles in a, in a broken down vehicle, I might be able to borrow one of mom or dad's vehicles and they would be there for me. I had assurance in that relationship that was the catalyst for me to move forward in my life. And I think when we get down and we talk about our marriages with our spouses, we make this commitment to each other and we have what should be some pretty solid assurance in our marriages. I Again, I know it's not perfect, but I, I'm pretty sure that Sarah and I will be together until one of us passes away, until death do us part. And I have that assurance of this marriage that's going to last a long time, hopefully into the 50-year range with, you know, with Charlie and Lindy celebrating 50 years. Incredible. But how do I behave during that time? If I want that relationship to thrive, even though I know it exists, if I want it to thrive, I'm going to let that assurance of that existence drive me to treat my wife well. And the same is true of her. Because of her assurance in our marriage and that security that we have with each other, we're going to treat each other as we should. And so my main point this morning, if you hear nothing else I say, is that you would let your assurance in Christ guide you to holy living. That you would let your assurance in Christ guide you to holy living. I want to give you some quotes from a few pastors that are prominent and well-known. I'm not going to share their names up here. If you want to know who they are, you can come ask me later. And they would oppose this. These are men that are very well-trusted across the evangelical community one of them says this about assurance. It says that assurance is found in the objective promise of the Bible. Okay, that sounds good so far. But then he goes on. It's found in the objective promises of the Bible and in our subjective works. And then he adds, what is going on in my life? Am I seeing transformation in my life? Because that's essential. 
The truth of assurance is the reward of tested and proven faith. Essentially, what this author is doing is making my salvation about me, my good behavior, my obedience, my proven faith. In fact, the same author would use that passage we just used in 1 Corinthians 11 regarding the Lord's Supper as a test of eternal life. But we know from the context of 1 Corinthians 11, what Paul is saying is you need to examine yourself to make sure you're right with God as a believer. I'm not saying to make sure you are a believer. Another very well-known pastor, he says, assurance requires the painful work of self-examination and that assurance is a fight until the day we die. That doesn't make any sense. If, it's, if assurance of salvation is a fight till the day I die, then I'm really not assured of salvation until after I'm dead. A third pastor, he says, assurance is by degrees. It depends on the degree that one walks as Christ walked to the degree that these qualities are growing and observable realities. We may assume that we possess eternal life, but to the degree that we are lacking, we should be concerned about whether we are truly Christians. That's not assurance. That's anti-assurance. So they take these verses out of context. Very two popular verses. You can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It's up there on the screen as well for your convenience. They take these sections out of context. First Corinthians thir- or 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Well, that sounds pretty spot on, but that's out of context. If you go to the very beginning of the book of 2 Corinthians, who is Paul addressing here? I'll tell you, it's in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Paul is addressing believers in this entire book. To be a part of the church in that day and age, just as it is today, is not, it's not, uh, you might come in and you might be lost, and while we certainly might have lost people in our pews, you're not part of the church if you're lost. And Paul knew that distinction. He goes on further to say, this is to all the saints throughout that whole region. He's not going to say, this book is for you, believers, and then flip over to the end of the book and say, well, you might not be saved, so you need to test yourself. That's not what Paul is getting at here. Next verse, 2 Peter chapter 1, sorry, chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Chapter 1. Therefore, brethren... Mixing my words up here. Who's on first? Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. But who is Peter addressing? Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who receive to those who received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He's not going to say in verse 1 of the same chapter, I'm addressing you as believers, and then go on into verse 10 and say, you need to be diligent to make certain that you're eternally saved. That's not what Peter nor Paul is getting at. Both of these letters, as well as John's epistles, are undoubtedly written to people who possess eternal life. The messaging is not one of testing to see if you're good enough or if you've believed hard enough. The message in both of these books is is the fact that we are to experience the Christian life as it should be lived, and for doing that, we attain rewards from Christ in heaven. And so these two verses are what a lot of anti-assurance people are basing their theology off of, but they're not even reading verse 1 of the book and applying it to the rest of the book. They're not going into the purpose of what these authors are getting at. They're just saying, you can't be assured. You need to test yourself constantly. In fact, one of these pastors actually did a sermon in the same quote, and he said, when somebody preaches on assurance of salvation, it ought to shed doubt. Just a little bit of doubt, just so people are examining themselves. And I don't know about you, but I don't see Jesus saying that. I don't see scripture saying that. few verses that would support assurance of salvation. You don't have to turn there, but Acts 16.31, it says, the jailer, he's talking to the apostles, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. It doesn't say believe yourself and do X, Y, Z, believe in Jesus and do all this stuff, and then you'll be saved. It says, believe in Jesus, and you and your household will be saved. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Notice that John doesn't say, he gave right to become children of God that those who believed in Jesus and performed these tasks to their best ability or whatever it is. It says he gave the right to be called children of God to those who believed in Jesus' name. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says that we should work out our salvation. It doesn't say we should work for our salvation. Paul is saying, work out what God has put in you. It's not on your screen, but Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 should be. That's a pretty solid passage. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of, your, not, not of yourselves, that no man should boast. Finally, we get into our book that we're going to be in in 1 John 1 John 2, 21 and 25. For I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and there is no lie that is of the truth. Verse 25. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. Nothing in those verses that I just explained to you has anything to do with your good behavior. You can have assurance in your salvation if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for it. 
Don't let anyone else deceive you. The entirety of John's gospel is centered around that. At the very end, he tells his readers, I have written these things to you so that you may believe, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. I argue that questioning your eternal security all the time is spiritually unhealthy and leads to a life of uncertainty and little or no growth. You're constantly having to check to see, oh, am I, did I really believe? Did I really believe? And, and you do this rinse, wash, repeat cycle. I think in my opening sermon when we talked about the context of, or the overarching view of this epistle, we talked about those camp salvations, right? When you go to camp for a week and you accept Jesus and then you come home and then you get back into the cycle that you were in, and maybe your family's not Christians or your friends are not Christians or whatever it is, and you start to live the life that you lived before camp, you didn't have this extremely transformation, transformative experience. And so you start to doubt yourself. You start to doubt God. You start to doubt what he put in you. You start to doubt this eternal life that he has given you at the moment you believed in him. That's not conducive for spiritual growth. Instead, I, I believe that your security in Christ, your assurance in Christ should be the driving factor behind your obedience to Christ and the growth in your Christian life. So before we get into our body passage, just a few verses, I want to read uh, what Ethan taught on last week. And we just read in verse 21 that John wrote these things not because they are unaware of the truth, but because they know the truth. And Ethan taught last week, he says, this is the promise which he has made to us, eternal life, beginning in verse 26 of chapter 2 here. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. That anointing, Ethan touched on it well last week, I thought, where he, he gave that that Greek word of chrisma. It's used here and in verse, uh, it had been verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. It's where we get the word Christ. We have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. Christ is the anointed one. As for the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as he but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie and just, it has, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. And this crux of the whole book in verses 28 and 29 it says, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Let's read our text. The first three verses of chapter 3, it says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, 
we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who puts this hope, sorry, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Our first point I want to make is that you can be assured of your current position. Verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Our position as children of God is of lasting quality. Our position as children of God is of lasting quality. The Greek word or the Greek phrase there for see how great, it means look at what quality. I think it might be a guy thing. Um, I do it all the time. I, I see my father-in-law do it all the time. When he walks by stuff, he knocks on things to see how cheap they are or how solid they are. And we have this general idea when we feel something with our hands, something that's tangible, we can usually tell if it's a quality product or if it's, if it's a cheap piece of junk. It's not so with God. His love is so deep and so good and so strong and so lasting that he even calls us his children. The sacrificial love of God, which made this possible, was not cheap. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. It says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies within our spirit that we are children of God. Galatians chapter 3 beginning in verse 26. Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, not through proving yourself, not through any form of test that you can take, not through being good enough, but it says you are sons of God through faith in Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither fa- uh, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Skip down into chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you've believed in Jesus for eternal life, you have the Holy Spirit living within your heart, crying out, Abba, Father, giving you this intimate relationship with God. You didn't do anything to earn the Holy Spirit living within you. It's only through faith in Jesus. William Barclay says this, he says, It is by the gift of God 
that a man becomes a child of God. By nature, a man is a creature of God, but it is by grace that he becomes a child of God. Because of God's great love, we now possess an intimate father-child relationship with God. See how great, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. See the quality of that love. The fact that our position as children is of lasting quality. Moving on, it's still in verse 1. Our position as children is a right, not a privilege. Our position as children is a right, not a privilege. You think of teenagers that start to drive. Mom and dad might contribute to purchasing a car. They definitely contribute to teaching a student how to drive. But then when rules are broken, when curfews are broken, guess what? You lose your privilege to drive. Uh, When a student in youth group says something outlandish in youth group, if I ask a question, they say something ridiculous. I say, you've lost your talking privileges. A privilege can be revoked. A right cannot. To bestow something means not only to give, but to present an honor or a right or a gift to someone. Because of God's sacrificial love, we have the right to be called children of God. We read it earlier in John 1, but it says that those who believe in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. We love our rights as Americans, don't we? Our right to free speech, our Second Amendment rights, our, all this stuff, so much so that many people have given their lives to protect these rights that we enjoy. But let me tell you this, the right to be called a child of God through faith in Christ needs not be protected because it cannot be stolen or taken away or revoked. God has already secured that right through giving us the Holy Spirit. How much more should we enjoy that right and live in that reality? Still in verse 1, our position as children of God, makes us unrecognizable to the world. Go back with me to John chapter 1. We were in earlier. We're going to read verse 12 again, but in light of the context there. Beginning in verse 9, it says, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he then, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the world didn't even know Jesus for who he was when he walked this earth. They certainly don't recognize you as a child of God the joy that you experience, the love that you experience through knowing Christ and your desire to be pleasing to him. When we practice righteousness, as verse 29 of chapter 2 says, it says, if we know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of him. When we practice righteousness, the world becomes 
hostile towards us because they don't understand that we serve a higher purpose, which is to glorify God in everything that you say and do. It makes for some pretty awkward conversations sometimes. When Sarah and I first got married, we were still living in Houston, and I was serving in a ministry called Young Life, and I, we went to the school that day for our Young Life gathering, and this young lady asked us, how long did you guys live together before you got married? It was just expected in her world. And she was shocked when we said we didn't live together before we got married. And the explanation for that is because we have put God first and foremost in our relationship and in our marriage, and we've experienced this love and this grace and this mercy from him. And, and because of that, we have this abiding trust that he will sustain us through all of the hardships that life brings. The world doesn't recognize that kind of hope. I had another conversation with a friend of mine in Houston who I like to see every time I go down there. And, and uh, when I started working or interning at a church and when he found out I was in Bible college and all this stuff, he, he started talking about money, which I thought was really weird. And uh, he said, do you give to your church? And I said, yeah, I give to my church. Why would you do that? I said, well, because the Bible talks about how God loves a cheerful giver and that he can use our finances to glorify himself and our church uses our money for missions and for different things. And so, yeah, I want to give to that greater cause. And he was floored. He doesn't recognize this relationship that we have with God as children. And it will often cause hostility in your relationships with the lost world. So be aware of that. Our second point, that you should be assured of your future position. Verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. That word beloved in light of verse 1, it means esteemed or dear, favorite, worthy of love. That's what John is calling these believers. Not only do we have this present status as children of God, but we can rest assured that we have a future status as children of God. A couple more references, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, if you're turning with me. Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Colossians chapter 3. This is the why, right? Because we have our citizenship in heaven, because we eagerly await Jesus, he says this, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in 
glory. We eagerly await that. Back in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. This word says, when we, we know that he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. This word appears comes at us three times in the last handful of verses. Twice, sorry, in verse 2 and once in verse 28, and it's in direct connection here. It says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. What John is getting at here is that as beloved children of God, as favored children of God, as those who God has deemed worthy of love, as esteemed children, we don't want to be ashamed at the moment that we're made like Christ in our glorified bodies if we have been living unlike him until that point. He's not saying you're unsaved, you need to live like, you need to test yourself. He's saying, why would you go backwards? Live out what God has already put in you. This motivation to not be ashamed, to not shrink away at the judgment of Christ, which is for believers, this should drive us to our third and final point, which I believe is the major theme throughout the book, one of the major themes throughout the whole book, and that is to use your assurance in Christ to pursue holiness. Use your assurance in Christ to pursue holiness. Assurance in Christ is synonymous with hope. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, chapter 11. The word hope Elpis in the Greek, it means an expectation of good, a joyful and confident expectation of eternal life. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says, Now faith is the assurance, assurance, there that word is, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. I'm not just sure of my status as a child of of God here on earth and later in heaven. I'm double sure of it. That's what Hebrews is saying. That kind of unwavering hope is what causes us to abide in Christ. Not some fear that you might not be saved, but the fact that you know that you are. The fact that you reflect on what Jesus has done for you should cause you to a life of gratitude and obedience. Fixed hope pursues holiness. Back in 1 John, the end of cha- uh, verse 3 of chapter 3. For everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure, talking about Christ. I'm focused on Christ because of my assurance in Christ purely by the grace of Christ. I'm not trying to be a good boy because I'm scared of not good enough. We already know that's not true. I've said that already. But thanks be to God that through his mercy and his grace, I can be assured in my eternal life. This laser focus should drive me to pursue holiness. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the very righteousness of God in him. And the next handful of verses in John's epistle, which will be taught on next week, John is about to tell these readers that the Christian life is supposed to be sinless. Well, how is that true of you and I today without having been cleansed by the blood of Christ receiving his righteousness in exchange for our guiltiness. We can't live a sinless life. John is telling his readers that this fixed hope and assurance on Christ is the fact that they have been made pure already in Christ. And as people who have already been made pure, why would we choose to deviate from what God has already done? Instead, we ought to use our assurance to pursue holiness and maintain that fellowship that we have with God, which is the whole point of the book, that we would be in fellowship with God. The word for purify in this verse means to be cleansed from immorality. And it's a verb, it's an action. As believers who are confident in the finished work of Christ, we can now live a life in pursuit of, of moral purity because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done, not according to our own strength. John already addressed the fact that believers will sin back in chapter 1 and 2. John 1, 8 through 2, 2. It says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. As a child of God, I can now confidently approach God when I do sin, immediately through confession to him, restoring that fellowship and continuing that pursuit of holiness. It's not a four steps back, one step forward kind of situation. You're not stuck. God is there and he's faithful and righteous and just to offer forgiveness to restore that fellowship. As we conclude this morning, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been given the right to be called children of God. And we can rest assured of our current and eternal future salvation. Because of this assurance, we can live a life of confidence in Christ pursuing holiness in order to bring glory and honor to him. Let's pray. Dear God, we again come to you in prayer, grateful for the assurance that we have in you, that you have offered us eternal life. For those who would believe in your name, God, I pray that that assurance would be the driving factor behind why we choose to follow you and why we seek to honor you. Lord, you are a God that is after our hearts and you see the intentions of our hearts. And Lord, let us serve you because we love you because of what you have done for us. 
Lord, help us to not be confused about our eternal life and to continue in that cycle of non-growth. But help us to confidently approach your throne of grace when we have messed things up, knowing that you are ready and willing to offer us forgiveness and put us on the right track. Lord, help us to maintain this fellowship that you have given us. Oh, what great a love you have bestowed on us. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.